Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Happy Labor Day. You got great plans for tomorrow? Yeah? Well, uh, for those of you who think labor is all about having children, happy Labor Day. I know we have a couple new babies here, right here, Thesis and I have Burleys I saw out in the hallway. I don't know if they're in here. We had two new babies this last month. Yay! For the rest of you, why is it that we celebrate something by not doing it? You ever thought about that one? And why is it that we have phrases and bars named TGIF and that we have something called happy hour that is designed to celebrate leaving what we're celebrating this weekend behind and getting a drink to drown our stress in or in the case of steak and shake getting a yummy happiness of a half-price milkshake during their happy hour um you ever think about stuff like that okay so i'm a little bit weird i also think about the fact that why do we call happy hour happy hour when it's like two to four or five to seven that doesn't make sense does it it just doesn't make sense on a serious note, though, about work, how many of you uh, ever get frustrated with work? Yeah? Everyone say amen on that one. How many of you think work uh, that you're doing is just really kind of a way to make money and it's really tough for you to connect it to your passion and uh, what you really want to do in life in terms of making a difference? How many of you struggle with disappointment in your work that you're not seeing the level of results or success or whatever you've dreamed of that you would receive? through that. Work is a major, major portion of our lives. This weekend I want to celebrate it and talk about it. And I want to actually make it an even more major portion of our lives by redefining work this way. Work is anything you do, whether it's a job, whether it's looking for a job, because some of you in this tough economy are really working hard to try to work for a job, look for a job, or whether it's you taking care of kids in a house, or whether it's you as a student. Work is anything we do try to move life forward for us. And oftentimes when I talk to people about work and trying to integrate faith and their following of Jesus into work, I get a couple of different responses. One of them that I've gotten a bunch lately in some conversations is this. I, I get people who are working in really, really competitive environments, thin, razor-thin margins for success. And they look at me and go, Ross, how can you be... Uh, to use a kind of a business idea with a slang, uh, how can you be the hunter slayer that you need to be to be even successful in the business world in a competitive environment and integrate that with Christianity? And, 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 and particularly if you're a leader in an environment like that, how can you integrate being a Christian and the fact that sometimes just over a razor-thin margin you need to make a choice of whether you're going to fire or let somebody keep their job and those difficult decisions. And I would submit to you today, we're not going to address that, that one fully, but I would submit to you today that underlying that question mark, that struggle for many of us is a distortion of what being a Christian really is and what the Bible really teaches about life. The distortion is this. The distortion is that being a Christian equals always being nice, and nice always equals the fact that you never do anything to upset anybody. Now, that's a clear distortion of Christianity. I mean... 
we can look at the stories of Jesus and go, man, he upset plenty of people and he made some tough decisions. So I want to, I want to take that one off the table even though we're not going to deal with it a lot today. The other one I hear a lot of times is kind of a frustrated, guilty, mixed kind of a response. Somebody usually always answers that question, how about faith in your workplace? And they say, I wish I was better at talking to people about Christ and leading people to the Lord in that setting. But at least I try to live a good example. Now, I understand, and we all understand, right, that there are different boundaries, even legal boundaries, surrounding how we share our faith in our work environments. A lot of it depends on what kind of job you're in, what kind of business, what kind of agency you work for, what your role is in that, and whether you're a boss of somebody or not. There's lots of things that create boundaries for how we talk about that stuff, right? We're going to actually uh, have a whole uh, series sometime in November. There's going to be a Sunday where we're going to have a business person from Quest lead a whole discussion on how do we wrestle with all those tensions of bringing faith into our workplace. But today, I want to really back away from that and, and talk about the fact that we, we get focused a lot of times only in business and integrating our faith with the idea of how can I evangelize and how can I be a good moral example. And while we certainly want that, I mean, that should be a heartbeat of ours to have that kind of stuff going on in our relationship. I think to limit it to that causes us to miss some of the biblical ideas of what God wants to share with us about how we find success, meaning, and really great life in our work. Now, so we're going to jump into this, and we're going to talk today about high capacity because I want to increase somehow, whether it's through reminder or through something new that we share. I don't know what it'll be for you, but I want you to walk away today with an increased sense of the ability to approach your work, whatever it is, with satisfaction, with a joy, with a passion, with even a hope and a passion for greater success than what you have today. One of the things I think we overlook a lot of times uh, in this uh, is when we look at work um, and our, our passion and our purpose in life, we tend to forget that where you are now, whatever you're doing now, whatever it is, is almost certainly God's calling on your life. At least for now. Now, some of you are sitting out there going, oh, crud, because you really hate where you're at and, where you're going, and you're not where you want to be, right? I, I understand that. But, but this whole idea of vocation that we have in life actually comes from a Latin word that means calling. And the Bible's teaching about this is that his calling has us where we're at. And I know that can be really hard to discern and hard to, hard to figure out sometimes. I remember having a sense in it as a, as a late teenager being, that God was calling me to be in vocational ministry. And I remember an encounter at the, at the age of 18 where God encountered me in a way that really gave really strong definition to what I would be doing in ministry. And then you know what happened for the next 11 years? I pitched manure and I spread it on fields. I worked in the school cafeteria and tried not to smell like it all day long, which is really hard to do when you work in the school cafeteria dish room. You just, you just end up smelling really bad all day long. I worked at UPS long enough to have a pension with UPS on a part-time basis with them. I even did a summer of a telemarketer for a charity, and actually that was, sorry, this is kind of old. We were actually going through the phone book 
name by name, assigned parts of the phone book just to cold call for a charity. And I'm so good at telemarketing that I made $2 an hour that summer doing that job. So don't hire me if you want somebody to cold call telemarket. Right? And during that whole time, I mean, sure, I was going through college and seminary and master's degree work, and, and I was pursuing vocational ministry. But i got to tell you, I, I maybe can't relate to where you are fully, but there were a lot of times in that 11 years where I was going, how in the world, how in the world is this getting me anywhere? Am I just going to be stuck in this dead-end job? for a really, really long time. And you probably ask the same question sometimes about your own, about your own career in general. How does ins- making this next installation, how does crunching these numbers, how does selling these widgets, how does making this decision or dealing with people's complaints or writing this extra line of code or this email, how does it connect to God's calling and His purpose in my life? Today we're going to We're going to look at that more, so let's just jump in. What the Bible teaches about work and a sense of calling, I think, can be really easiest, most easily summed up in uh, two of the ideas that emerged out of the Reformation time period. Martin Luther used to talk about work, and he said this. He said, all work is a calling from God. And Calvin used to talk about it this way. He said, The purpose of work is to create a culture that honors God and enables people to thrive. Now, biblically, our idea of work actually goes back to God himself. In John 5, Jesus says this. He says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. What he's saying there is that the essence of God is about work. It's about in, built into who God is is a desire to move things forward to greater health, to greater prosperity, to, to greater blessing or success or change in our lives. And, and since we're created in the image of God, we're all hired, hardwired with the, the desire to make that same kind of a difference in life, to enable people to thrive, to do something with our life that's meaningful. So the question really becomes a lot of times, how do we integrate the sense of calling with what we do? And let's look, for example, at a couple, couple of biblical characters and look at their sense of calling and how that panned out for them. First one is Abraham. Look at Abraham's calling. If you know the story of Abraham, generally speaking, what was his calling in life? His calling was to remain faithful to God so God would bless him and make him a blessing, and that was most specifically represented through what? A child, having a child, and starting a new family line. Now along the way in his life, we see God blessing him tremendously, his wealth and prosperity increasing him, bringing workers on and blessing many families with the wealth that he had in his, in his life. We see in another instance where, where he goes out to battle and restores the lost fortunes of multiple kings and blesses them in that way. And, and we're left in general with the story of a guy who remained really faithful in his life. But if we look at his life in general, his daily life was extremely ordinary. Extremely ordinary. What about the Apostle Paul, this great figure in the Bible, called to be the Gentile to the Apostles, called to plant churches, start churches all over the Roman Empire. What did he do? He actually made his living as a literally a tent maker. He made tents and sold them. This great man of God who made such a difference in the world through his preaching and teaching and writing and speaking 
made tents to make a living. Isaiah, the great prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah happened to be a part of the court of the king and he was paid to be a prophet. And Amos over here, another prophet, is a guy that we don't know a tremendous amount, but what we do know is that the very mo- at the very best, he may have been a poor small landowner who had a few sheep and a few trees, a, a, a small orchard that he tended. And, and more than likely, he was actually not even the landowner. More than likely, he was a hired hand. I wonder at times if Amos ever struggled watching Isaiah, his contemporary, being paid by the king and by the court to minister, to be able to do that full time, and struggled with God going, why Am I out here pruning this tree? Why am I out here shearing the sheep when I could be doing so much more? Then there's Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament is the the guy who has the definition, the pure definition of a dead-end job. He's a slave. Sold into slavery. Manages to follow God faithfully enough and work faithfully enough and hard enough that he gets promoted to manage his whole master's household to a great, wonderful position. And then he ends up being thrown in jail. Another dead-end job. And I love Joseph's story. I think it's inspiration to all of us, inspirational to all of us, not just because of the rags to riches. I love it not just because of the rags to riches or the, or the oppression to, to power or story, although that inspires me. And I don't... I don't love it because of the end result so much even because if we really look at his story, the reality is that time period of being stuck, going nowhere, was a really long part of his life. It was many years. It wasn't a short time. It wasn't the 20 minutes it takes us to read the story. This was years in that role. And yet his story actually inspires me for a greater reason than than the outcome of it. It inspires me because of this truth that I learned from it. And that truth is often our best work in life is not tangibly rewarded. It isn't, isn't it? We expect in our culture to get rewarded for good work. We expect if we sell more, we make more. We expect if we do a good job that we're going to get promoted. But that doesn't always happen, does it? Right? I would look at my life and I think some of the times, some of my best work was actually when I was working part-time at UPS and I refused the promotions that they asked, offered me. Why? Because I knew that that was going to distract me from the calling that God really had on my life and create too many hours and prevent me from finishing what I really needed to finish. But I tell you what, it didn't feel like blessing back then. And it certainly didn't feel like blessing when UPS went public and I had no stock. I mean, that would have been, I might have been able to retire had I gone that way when they went public. And some of the decisions I've made in life that I think are the best work that God has ever done in my life as I look back on them, didn't necessarily feel it at the time, didn't result in affirmation, didn't result in financial gain, didn't result in any kind of promotion. Instead, it resulted in difficulty, financial stress, and threat in life. And yet it was some of the best stuff that God has done through my life. For many of you, the best work you've done in your life is is not the great sale. For many of you, the best work you've done in your life is your ability to remain faithful in a difficult situation. To love the people around you even when they're not loving. 
to pursue your job with excellence and to do a really good job even when the person over here who doesn't do as good a job gets promoted and you still stay faithful and you do your job and you do it well. You see, when we understand work as calling, as God leading us into this thing of moving things forward to bring blessing to us and others, when we understand it as a worship responsibility to God, giving all of our joy-filled obedience that we can muster, and sometimes it feels like we're mustering it right because it's not easy, but when we give that kind of worship to God, we find the ability to live in a sense of God's calling and blessing and satisfaction regardless of what we're doing. Now, because really, the sense of calling means this. It means that we're living for an audience of one. And when we really learn to do that, to give our work to God and God alone, we get this nourishment, this sense of purpose from Him, no matter how mundane, no matter if I'm out in the middle of a field spreading manure, or whether it's one of these surprising moments like I had this last week. I was on jury duty this last week. And uh, I was sitting there asking God, why this week? It's such a busy week. Why this week, God? And all of a sudden, out of the blue, in the back hallway of the courthouse, I get to have this wonderful faith conversation with this gal who's a fairly new Christian who's just really struggling. Didn't even know her before this week. Can't even tell you her last name. And God just does stuff. I'm sure many of you feel the same about your job. Sometimes you, you ask the question, Lord, why this? How can I reach people sitting behind this computer all day long? But here's the question I want you to ask instead daily. I want you to ask this question, Lord, what are you calling me to be a part of today? See, here's the, here's, here's the truth. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 2.10, it says God promises that he will prepare good works in advance for us to do in our life. So the question is, are you asking him daily, what's the good work today? What did you prepare in advance for me to do today? Are you looking for those things daily, even as you're just doing a simple install or you're doing an inspection or you're, you're typing another line of code or you're typing an email or making a strategic decision? Are you asking, where are you in this today? What's the good work you prepared for me to do today? I want to actually pause for a moment instead of asking you to try to remember this and go home and do that, I want to pause, and we're just going to go silent for about 30 seconds or so, and I want you to ask yourself this question. Lord, what are you calling me? Ask God this question. Lord, what are you calling me to be a part of today? And see what he says. something came to mind, write it down. Here's one of our journeys of faith. When we ask, we expect to receive. So when you ask God a question like this, expect that the thoughts that come to mind just might very well be Him. And then when we start to learn to act on those things and we start to see God show up, it changes our passion. It adds passion. It adds hope to our life when we see the tangible presence of God working. 
But let's continue and look a little bit further at the path I think God, uh, at least some parts of the path that I think God takes us all on in our work and life. The first one is uh, commonly referred to as the little great principle. And you've probably heard it before. Luke 16, 10, it says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much, Jesus says. The truth of that is that what is teaching us is the path to God's blessing in every area of our life, our work in whatever area of our life, is built upon our faithfulness to the little things in life. It's those little things in life that when you have a conversation with somebody and you try to say this is a big deal, they kind of go, ugh, that's not a big deal. It's the kind of things in life when you've offended somebody or you think you've sinned against somebody and you go, you go repent to them and they go, well, that's not a big deal. It's those little things in life. It's, it's, it's those, as youth, we all begin to learn the little things by our chores and by how we handle them, right? How well do we do this job? Do we just do the minimum or do we do this job well? Even if we hate the job, do we press through and do it with a great attitude without complaining and do it quickly and not without, and without distraction? This last week I was listening to some stuff trying to prepare for this message and, and I heard this story of a family. The, this family owned a couple large corporations and they actually constructed the chores of their children as they were growing up in a way that would test, they were tests basically, these chores at home as to whether they were going to give them the company one day. It's the little things that we do that create faithfulness and create the base for the big things. And God is clearly saying that the faithfulness and the little things are important. When we talk about it, the little things, we talk about it in many different ways. You've, you've probably heard some of this. Sometimes we talk about it in terms of our pace of work. Do we pay attention to working good and quick and hard? Sometimes we talk about it in terms of do we, do we focus on being fully engaged with our work where we're not Facebooking, we're not doing personal stuff, we're giving our best at the time we're doing. And all those things are true. Sometimes we also talk about focusing on the little things by the things that aren't seen. Do you work as hard and as focused when nobody's watching, when you're not seen? I got a, a wonderful privilege this last week of seeing this lived out before me. Uh, I was on a jury, and the judge, Judge Sheward, had been practicing law for 27 years and seen tons of crud. Before that, he had been a prosecutor for 37, which I guess means he's like ancient. I don't know how old he is. But watching this judge, it was just an amazing experience. He was attentive to the little things of a relationship in his court like I've, I don't think I've ever seen anybody. He was so attentive to the little things of politeness, of respect, regardless of whether you were in the right or in the wrong, regardless of whether you were a lawyer who just asked a question that was stupid and then you challenged him and he told you to move on. He was attentive to the little things. I've never seen such kindness and such beauty, actually, in a difficult situation. In fact, this guy was just generally happy. How do you be happy after seeing all that stuff, being a prosecutor for years, and then seeing all the crud of life day after day? How do you remain so happy? But this guy would sit up on his bench, and this is actually really funny. He would sit up on his bench, and the, the, the lawyers were talking, and uh, the witnesses were talking, and he'd just be humming a happy tune, listening. He was the guy I, I, I think everybody wants as your grandpa. 
just an amazing guy. But it was the littleness. How do we pay attention to the little things of relationship in our lives? The pleases and the thank yous and the respect and the tone and the smiles and the, and the kindness. You know, do we pay attention to little things or do we live life with excuses saying, oh, that's not a really a big deal? Do we allow the faithfulness, do we allow our faithfulness of God to others, to honesty, to transparency, to go even as far as the little things? You see, when you read the story of the Bible and look at the Old Testament and you see the stories of the good kings, in every single story of the good kings in the, in the Old Testament, you see their shortfall being mentioned in a small phrase. While they did all this and God was really pleased with how they did all this wonderful reform, they didn't pay attention to, and it almost always lists, one or two little things. And the result of not taking the faithfulness to the little things was that sin so, so much more quickly crept back into their own lives and destruction so much more quickly crept back into the culture of those days. Are you faithful in the little things in your relationships? See, faithfulness is the base, and the little is the base of the big. I got another example this last week in the defendant, uh, in the trial we were in, seeing how a lack of faithfulness in the little things, when a big thing happens, everything blows up, and integrity goes out the wazoo, and a mess happens, and pain happens all around. The Bible also wants to teach us another lesson about work, too. And let's just describe this one as the healthy rhythm that God wants to have in our lives. There's a scripture that's been a lot in my life that's it's both vital to the satisfaction and joy of God, joy in God as we work for us, but it's also a scripture that I think when we read it, for most of us, it brings more angst, more pain, more tension, more negativity than almost any other scripture in the whole Bible. Colossians 3.23 is what it is. It says, you've probably heard it again, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working unto the Lord, not for human masters. So no matter what you're doing, whether it's important or menial, whether it's paid or volunteering, whether it's paid well or you're grossly underpaid, do it with all of your heart, whether it's fair or unfair, do it with all of your heart as unto God. For me, the way I translated that uh, at an early age, memorizing this verse in my teens, I translated it the same way coaches talk to you about a game. They basically say what? They say, leave it all on the field, right? Leave it all on the field. Which to me then translated into saying, okay, if I'm going to fulfill this scripture, it means I work hard, I work fast, I do a good job, and I treat people I encounter like gold in the process. If I do those four things, I fulfill the scripture. And that's true, right? Really behind this is the whole idea of hard work and our work ethic. And every single great person you ever talked to, if you've ever heard an interview with them, what was the key to your success? One of the top things they'll always say, if not the first, is I work hard. Thomas Edison said it this way. He said, the reason a lot of people do not recognize opportunity is because it usually goes around wearing overalls looking like hard work. Right? Proverbs 10, 4. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. And there's tons of verses like that in Proverbs. Newt Gingrich once said, I love this quote, he said, Perseverance is the hard work you do after you get tired of doing the hard work you already did. 
right? And that's the key to success. Practically, for me, what that translated into my life, and I'm sure for many of you as well, is if I'm going to do everything with all of my heart under the big man, then I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to work longer, I'm going to work faster, I'm going to work better than anybody else. That's my goal in life. And I have to admit, at the age of 16, when I was really strong, working on the farms, that was really humiliating when a 55-year-old or a 70-year-old farmer, which actually happened, could outwork me. It pushed me and drove me like crazy. Now, that work work ethic served me really well, going through college and and master's work when I was working full-time and going to school full-time. So there's a benefit from that. But boy, that interpretation of that verse didn't work so well in my marriage. When I was a newlywed, working full-time, going to school full-time, it was pretty painful. And it didn't work very well for me emotionally and physically either in my health. Working with all of your heart as unto the Lord, unto the big man, for most of us, puts within us this pressure to perform, this pressure to do things perfect. And how can you measure up to the big man to do it under the, to do it unto him? And we get ourselves caught so easily back in this religious mindset of performing, and we do this work to merit God's blessing. And some of you know what I mean. Because you work really, really, really hard because you believe this. And maybe you work really hard even if you don't believe this. But in your quiet moments, you spend time questioning, is it worth it? Because you find yourself not enjoying life as much. You're a little more numb. You find yourself being a little bit of a robot every now and then. Sure, I mean, the success, the the great sale, the expansion in the business, or the success gives you another shot of drive to go to the next level, right? That that comes in there. But, But in your tiredness, you have these questions that plague you about the overall quality of your life. Is the price I'm paying worth it? I don't think that outcome in my life and maybe in your life from this Colossians verse is what Paul intended, but Psalm, 20, Psalm 127 gives us kind of a, a more clear balancing statement to this. Solomon writes it, one of the most successful people in all of history, and he says this. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he, God, grants sleep. To those he loves. So here's the question. How's your sleep? How's your sleep? You sleeping enough? You sleeping well? How's your sleep? See, the promise I think God wants to give us today and wants to focus us on is that God has specific plans for you today. Not for just some big idea out there in the future. And regardless of how far away you are from that dream, what if we approached each day with a heart that said, there's nothing better for me to do than to enjoy the work God's given me today? What if we live today, tomorrow, the next day, in all the daily grind, and it's a grind, we all know that, there's a lot of daily grind with work. What if we lived those days anticipating God coming and redeeming that work and making it a blessing to us and making us a blessing to others.
so that others would thrive like Calvin defined one of the purposes of work, no matter where we are. I'm not saying it's easy. I mean, every one of us knows those days that are really hard, right? We all know how hard this is. But what if we approached each day with a heart that said that if we would live in the present today, knowing there's nothing better for me than to enjoy my work today, that God is in this today, that God wants to bless me and bless others today. You see, I think in the Bible, setting up this tension between this drive, yes, we want to work hard and we want to drive, work for the Lord, and, but then this rest is, is based, I think he's trying to teach us basically four things. God calls us to make a positive difference in life through our work. And yet God also says that blessing and success comes from him, not from your hard work. And then it says again, once you understand what God's called you to, he, is one, he, he does want you to have a good work ethic. But God also wants a balanced rhythm in our lives of resting, of stopping, of breathing. Michael Eisner, the former CEO of Disney, if you know the history of it, he came into Disney when Disney was in really bad shape. They were about to be sold off in pieces and no longer exist as we know them, Right? He came in, and we know, the, we know the history. We know Disney's still together. We know he did an amazing turnaround. He wrote a book uh, called A Work in Progress, which was kind of his memoirs of that turnaround process. And in the book, he, he talks about what went on and how he did it, and he gives us tips of how we could also lead like him. And then at the very end of those tips, he says this. He says, and I have no friends, and I ruined my health. As he was writing this book, he'd had a heart attack. Chris Lowney, some of you may know the name. In his early years, he started his training to be a Jesuit priest. He eventually left seminary and went into the workforce and got hired at J.P. Morgan. And uh, the reason you may possibly know his name is because at one point he was uh, on the short list to become chairman of J.P. Morgan. He didn't get it, but he had a very, very successful career. When he entered the workforce... He looked at the people around him, and he saw this competitive, second-to-none work ethic that was, that was driving people. And the, the drivenness was all about making it big. The drivenness was all about making lots of money. And he saw what it was doing to their lives. And he said, I don't want to be like that. And so he basically went about the process of saying, I'm going to try to apply the principles I learned about living, the li- living life as a Jesuit. To how, to how, on how to lead and how to work in this environment. Now, I actually haven't read the book, but I read enough reviews on it and heard people talk about it this last week, so I want to recommend his book to you. It's called Heroic Leadership, Heroic Leadership by Chris Lowney. One of the key practices, one of his most important practices he talks about in that book is an ancient practice that you may have heard of under this really fancy name called the spiritual habit of examine. Basically, that's a fancy word to say, check in with God on a regular basis. So in his schedule, he would put a two-minute block at the late morning and a two-minute block in the afternoon. And during that two minutes, he would, there would be no distractions, no calls, nobody else in his room, no screens, no music. It would just be silent. Now, I realize you may have a hard time doing, it that, work, doing that at work. You may even have a hard time going to the bathroom and finding silence, right? 
But the point is, no distractions. Do the best we can on that. And he would take time and he'd orient his thoughts towards God. And he'd ask four types of questions. They'll be on your screen. He says, how am I doing with you, God, today? How is my attitude doing today? How am I doing with people today? How is my heart toward others? Am I okay in my heart towards others? Or are you wanting to be to, are you speaking to me and wanting me to bless someone? Am I missing it today? And then the final one, how am I doing staying on track with the tasks you have given me? It's a little thing. Two minutes a day. A very little thing. But for him, faithfulness in this reoriented him consistently to work as God's calling to work as understanding what God called him to do and what he didn't call him to do, to allowing rest to enter his life. And the point wasn't that we answer all the questions all the time. The point is that we check in with God. So I want to take a moment again, before, we get, before I send you out today, I want to just take about, oh, maybe about 90 seconds right now. And I want it just to be silent. We're not going to have any music. And I want you to take a look at these questions and whichever question or two you are most drawn to, ask God that question and see if he'll speak to you. Let's do that now. As we close, I want to point to a scripture in Genesis 3 that speaks directly to the negative effects that sin in our world have on our work. Genesis 3 says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground. What a pleasant verse. We know from the overarching story of Scripture that Jesus has won the battle against sin. We know from the overarching story of Scripture that his kingdom, his rule, his love, his redeeming power is breaking into our lives to redeem things, to make things better. But we also know that we will still always struggle with the effects of sin and the curse of sin in life until he comes back. But here's the question. Within that, I think there's a choice for us. Will we choose to focus more on the blessing and the redemption God wants to do through work, or will we focus more on the curse and the pain and the struggle? Dave Schmelzer is a former pastor at the Boston Vineyard, and I was listening to him speak this last week on the topic of work, and he tells a story. Uh, Dave Schmelzer uh, spent about 10, 12 years of his early career, he was wanting to be a playwright. And so he spent all that time working kind of dead-end, entry-level jobs, just trying to make enough money so he could work on breaking into the theater. And about nine, ten years into that, he's getting really frustrated because it isn't happening. Life isn't going well. 
and he's been working in this warehouse. And in this warehouse, there's a, this uh, immigrant, an older gentleman, an immigrant, who'd been working in this warehouse on the floor for 12 years. And he'd gotten to know this guy's story. This, guy's, this guy left his own country, had been a very high-level, influential executive position in his own country, and now he'd been here carrying boxes in a warehouse for 12 years. And one day Dave comes in really grumpy because things aren't going well, and he goes up this guy who's just always cheerful, and he says to him, how, how do you stay so cheerful all the time? What has cheerful done for you leaving behind a better job? And the old man, he says, turned to me. He said, he looked at me and he said, I'm happy and I'm satisfied with life. Cheerful has gotten me fulfillment. Cheerful has helped me bless my family with opportunity they did not have previously. You see, the truth is that hard work and rejoicing in the calling of God each day does not guarantee a wealthy life. I, it'll, I guarantee it'll be wealthier with it than without it. But it doesn't guarantee a wealthy life. The point is that God cares about what you do, everything you do. He cares about the products we make. He cares about the companies we're involved with. He cares about the customers we serve. He loves us, he loves the world, and he wants us to serve it well in every place we are in life. Mother Teresa talked about this and she said there's always the danger that we may just do work for the sake of work and this is where the respect and the love and the devotion come in that we do it to God to Christ and that's why we try to do it as beautifully as possible for Mother Teresa that beauty was hanging out with people who stunk and loving them and treating them with the dignity that of, of a king for you that that may be dealing with a tyrannical boss or an unreasonable customer or a really difficult coworker, and treating them with the same kind of love you would treat your child who you adore. You see, God's inviting us to rejoice in the journey of work each and every day. If the only thing today that we do is about getting to tomorrow, then today doesn't matter. But if we believe that God has you where you are today, today, God has a calling for you to accomplish where you are today, not just in the future. That's where he wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would come, and I ask especially right now that you would come to the ones here who are in that place where we all tend to be at times where we're just really, really struggling really frustrated and I pray that your presence would come now and that you would redeem that moment for us and that you would give each one of us the strength to do our work unto you and to rejoice in it regardless of what the work is in Jesus name Amen Thank you for listening Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.